Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I love the mission around Grace Anderson's work. She's a network weaver, strategist, and dreamer working at the intersection of race, healing, and the environment. So we talk about how her decade-long experience of working as a ranger and in the outdoor industry eventually led her to becoming an independent environmental consultant, where she helps build the capacity of people of color in the environmental space by moving resources towards their dreams and by creating structural programming to support their growth. So this is what is really impactful about Grace's work, which is moving resources towards the needs of people of color. And we talk about how she does this through advising philanthropic initiatives and creating more programming to benefit environmentalists of color. I'm so glad she has chosen to focus her work in this very specific challenge because clearly, from my experience at least, we don't see enough of this. So I really am glad that she agreed to be a guest on this podcast and bring her story to us. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So Grace, thank you so much for being on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. We're really excited to have you tell your story to us. And before we do go into talking about your experiences with the outdoor and environmental sector and what you do as an independent consultant today. Let's start with our first question here, which is what role has nature played in your life? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Nature has been, yeah, I think it's played two very different roles in my life. The first one just being a very grounding space. Every time I'm outside, I'm just reminded how small I am in the big system of things and also how powerful I am in the big systems of things. Mm-hmm. I often go to nature when I'm like confused, overwhelmed, just need some peace. Like I love morning walks and nature for me is like just interacting with the trees outside of my house or like going up into the hills in Oakland or going into the back country of Yosemite or other like wild spaces. So yeah, it provides this like really grounding experience for me. And it also reminds me of how powerful I am. Like I think seeing myself as part of this larger ecosystem that works together to create the world that we live in is a really powerful thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to like recreation and nature, I love being outside alone. Like I love going backpacking by myself. I love road biking by myself. And that's always when I feel most powerful. Oh, I can do these things by myself. I think that's been a really important lesson for me to learn as a Black woman, just like how powerful I am. Yeah. So yeah, nature is very, very important to me. Plays a big role in my life. Wow. I haven't heard how being in nature gives you power, but it's so true. When I first started going outdoors is when I got a dog who needed a lot of walking (laughs) and she had a lot of energy and so we would just go on almost like two-hour hikes by ourselves and I didn't realize how invigorating it was to just be there by ourselves and for some reason I mean this was in in Austin Texas I didn't feel scared I guess It was just also an opportunity for me to be in nature. I think that was the first time I was in nature in, I don't know, several decades, I feel. Uh, Yeah. So it was really nice to to have my dog push me into the outdoors. I love that. I love that. (laughs) So you worked for a decade in the outdoor and environmental sector. And now you work as an independent consultant. So what specific issues were you focused on in that decade? And do you continue to do so as an independent as well? Yeah, so I got into the outdoor space by way of the Student Conservation Association, which places high school and college students in internships. So I was a park ranger as soon as I graduated from college. And as soon as I started 
working in a more formal setting in the outdoors, I recognized how few people of color I was seeing. And it was also where I was. So <laughs> it's like partially not seeing a lot of folks of color, but I was also living in like really obscure places. But I think once I started to get in like to more formal positions, I was just noticing that there was a lack of folks of color in these spaces and then and leadership. And then also like our programming didn't feel relevant to like the large swath of population and demographics in the United States. And so very early on, my work started to have like a DEI focus, like in the most like basic sense, like I am a Black person in this space and would love to see more Black folks. And just to tell the stories, I think this came later, but I soon realized that it wasn't that we weren't there. Our stories just weren't being told. Right. It was like a very white dominated narrative of like outdoors and the stories of indigenous folks weren't being told, the story of black folks weren't being told, the story of Asian folks. Like it just wasn't integrated into anything that I was learning. And so got started in that way and like more of a DEI focus. And I think eventually, like after a few years of working at some really like big white environmental institutions, I realized that I didn't want to spend my time educating white folks. And instead, what I wanted to do is to spend my time, resources, and energy on like centering people of color and our experiences and like moving resources towards what we needed. Mm -hmm. And when I started to shift that, it happened to be around the time that PGM1, which is people of the global majority in the outdoors, nature, and environment, a racial affinity space for folks of color who work in the outdoor and environmental sectors, was looking for a director. And it was just, it was I will forever be grateful to be in the right time and place to be able to step in as the director because I think it really just showed me the power of folks of color and how we just needed spaces that were only for us, like created by us, for us, Mm -hmm. and centered us. And so that really like just like completely shifted my trajectory and like kind of mindset around what I should be doing because I think DEI work has become like a tool for white folks to use in various ways like and that's a huge generalization but i do think in the large like dei field a lot of resources are going towards white people instead of like centering people of color and i understand there's like education and such that needs to happen for white folks but i think it's just like really missing so many opportunities to uplift people of color yeah so after i left pgm1 i decided that i wanted to continue to work on like centering folks of color but i wanted to do it independently i think For me, like working in an institution is so hard because as a Black person, I feel like I have to advocate for myself, try to create space for other people and do my job. And that's just like not sustainable. And so it's like, okay, let me eliminate some pieces of this. Let me eliminate the bureaucracy of working for someone else and like navigating all of their issues and instead like work on a project basis on issues and things that I really care about. And so my focus has stayed the same, just like approaching it in a different way. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm like really committed to living the life that I want to see for all of us, which is like spacious and joyful and not being always in the place of education and hardship. Like I don't want my work to be centered in hardship, but instead like joy and brilliance of like all the things that we contribute to this world. And so I've been independent for, I think a year now. Okay. And I can't see myself going back into an institution. Yeah. There's so many good points there that I want to dive in a little bit deeper into. One is, at least for me, it's this recent conversation that we've been having about whether DEI is harmful or helpful. And I struggle with that myself because in my space, in the water sector, I find myself having to do some education because I feel like I have to provide context for what I'm asking of the water sector. I'm asking Mm -hmm. for the water sector to be more cognizant of the harm that some of our decisions make on access that black and brown communities have to water supply, water quality, to climate resilience. And I wonder sometimes when I give my workshops, if I'm doing harm (laughs) Mm. more than Good, because the water sector is also a very white space with people who want to, who have good intentions, of course. And 
I'm increasingly trying to figure out ways of how we can create more, I guess, safe spaces or affinity spaces for water professionals of color. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like an ongoing conversation that I'm having with myself and other professionals of color in the industry to see like, how can we create a space like that for ourselves in addition to having our full-time jobs right. <laughs> and trying to thrive in these white spaces. So how do you approach, I guess, your DEI philosophy? You mentioned that you don't do so much of the education, but you find other ways to apply it. What does that look like? Yeah. So I think my approach right now, I don't see my work as DEI work anymore. I think I was siloed mm-hmm. into that as a Black person who is like one of few visible folks at the time. Now I see my work as just like liberation and joy work. And I think my approach now is just like working with folks of color and like holding affinity spaces. I don't do any trainings. I just want to build things. Like I feel like we we've been advocating for what we need for so long and we know what we need. We keep saying what we need. And so my goal right now is just to move resources towards that. Right. And yeah, I think DI is tricky because it does provide some space to, like you said, like lay context. And there is a lot of education that needs to be done. I just think it is so out of balance. Like I'll watch organizations get like old white institutions get like huge grants to do DEI work and then like grassroots POC led organizations aren't getting ND funding. And that makes no sense to me. It's like, Mm -hmm. I feel like DEI gives so many white people and institutions opportunities to like try and not like focus any of that money towards folks who have been doing it for years and have known how to do it. So that's, yeah, it just, it feels icky. It feels like really imbalanced. I think it's replicating some like really harmful practices and it is a tool. I just think we need to re-examine where the resources are going from it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know what I'm calling my work right now, but it's like, I think it's like resource mobilization towards people of color. Mm-hmm. And that's not DEI. It just feels like, it feels like soul work. It feels like joy work. It feels like liberatory work. It feels yeah. like, yeah, anti-oppressive, anti-Black work. Yeah, I think you already do have a definition for your work. Like you said, it's uh, liberation and joy work. And you've gotten there faster than I have. (laughs) And kudos to you. I think for me, I'm still trying to figure out how to resolve this thought or this responsibility of, if not me, then who? Mm. And I know that like over time, I've moved away from like, I cannot take that full burden of doing the education. So I'm slowly, you know, taking more projects that are more focused on like system change, structural change within the utility space. So like developing tools to center the needs and experiences of people of color in the Mm -hmm. water industry. And also just if I do work with white folks in the space, then it's just Asking more of them, such as like making more space, relinquishing power <laughs> and space right. to people of color. And what exactly does that look like? But then I struggle with at the end of the day, I don't have control of whether they implement that message right. the way I ask them or those tasks the way we ask them to. Totally. And so I guess I'm just sharing like, a general conundrum within myself of doing this work. I'm aware (laughs) of it. And I think it just looks different for each person's journey. Totally, totally. And I think we will always struggle with that as folks of color in like these really white spaces. Like, yeah, where do we want to put our time and energy? And I do want to say, I feel like it is a huge privilege for me to be able to navigate work in the way that I do right now. I think like there is, especially in the consulting space, like there's social capital. And I like getting started, I think I was 21 when I, 20, when I first took my first job in the enviro world. And I think I was just tokenized for the first like five years of my career. So there was that, but I think as a result of it, I have a lot of social capital that allows me to like take jobs, not take jobs, like push back on things. Like I have a lot of comfort around that. And so I do want to acknowledge the privilege of being able to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think like, yeah, we live under capitalism and sometimes you just got to take what pays like, and that's not always the most like liberatory work. 
I think for me, like something that I've been trying to do is just get clear on who I am. Like, and that has helped me think about how I want to approach this work. I don't know if you've seen the social ecosystem map by Building Movement Project that outlines the different roles that people play in movements. Yeah, but I went through that and there's some things I just know about myself. Like I'm pretty sleepy. I like <laughs> don't like crowds. I like don't like being in leadership. Like I don't like being in the front of rooms. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I know these things about myself. I do not belong in a protest. Like those make me socially anxious, but I will write your grants all day, every day. I will like <laughs> yeah. fill out paperwork. Like there's certain things I know about myself and I'm trying to work in a way that makes sense. Like I think sometimes we expend too much energy doing things that either we don't want to do or don't aren't good at. Yes. And I don't think we need to be good at everything. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, I'll fill out paperwork for the movement. Like if that's the role <laughs> that I need to play right now, I don't need to be in certain spaces. And I think that's really helped me with the work that I'm doing. I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is not, this is it. And this isn't it. But yeah, again, I do want to note the like privilege and be able to like choose work. Yeah. And I think that's the case for so many people. Yeah, I feel like I've been in survival mode for so many years as an immigrant mm. where the main goal was just to be able to stay in the country legally, right? right? And so whatever like job I got, I just took it for that yeah. very purpose. And so over time, I haven't learned to know what is opportunity that benefits me in a sense. And benefits the direction in which I want to go in. But as an independent consultant, I've had to learn that. And I think it's yeah. been a really eye-opening journey of, yeah, even being an independent consultant, like I consider myself being more lucky to have survived four years doing this because I didn't mm. think I would. And just because of the uncomfortable conversations I'm having with people in the industry, I didn't think they would want to have them. And listen to me. And I don't know if they'll want to do that next year, right? Right, right. So I hear what you're saying. There's something from an article that you wrote that's on your website, which is your first and last name.co. So graceanderson.co. You wrote this article about is DEI work upholding the same system it seeks to challenge? And there's a sentence here that really resonated with me where you said, in some instances, DI has further exacerbated and coddled the problematic ways white leadership and organizations maintain the status quo. And that is something that I was referring to when I was thinking about harm. If I'm causing more harm, mm. am I just like reinforcing the, yeah, some of the comfort that white folks need when they're doing this work? Yeah. I don't know. We can talk about it for... <laughs> Days, Forever. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's um makes me want to pull my hair out. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I wrote that because I've seen like that specific line makes me think about like, yeah, I think some of the language that we've been using to push DEI along has been weaponized by leaders, white leaders. They like have learned a few things and now they like use it to like manipulate and like manipulate and then also like retain power they're like oh well i've done my dei training like that was all that was required of me you can like rattle off the definition of white supremacy so like leave me alone <laughs> i've been held accountable and this is like the extent of my accountability mm -hmm. yeah i could talk about this all day every day <laughs> yeah it reminds me of something that i've also noticed is like there's often a reference to you know this saying within the DI space of it's a journey, you know, it'll take time. Yeah. Like we can't change things overnight. And I feel like sometimes that's used as an excuse not to make immediate change or short-term change. Right. It just allows right. them to kick the, what was the can down the street or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Is. exactly. <laughs> so that's for me is an example of what you were saying of the words are weaponized. Right but for their own kind of like intentions, benefits. So yeah, totally. And then anyways, let's, <laughs> for, all for all day. of our listeners, yeah. Should, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that article was really insightful. And so I just wanted to bring that to the attention of our readers and we'll provide that in our show notes as well. But I've also come to the realization that I am or have probably caused 
harm in a way that I may not have been aware of in the past. And so for me, it's figuring out what was that and unlearning and undoing that. Mm. And just like talking to more people in the space who do this type of work, who have like, who can help me prevent making those mistakes in the future, I guess. So like what I'm trying to say is just because we are human beings, we are going to make mistakes and oh, for sure. we will cause some sort of harm. But if there are things that us as people who are advocating for creating these joyful and liberating spaces that we are aware of the harm that we could cause and try to prevent it in any way that we can. Yeah, I was just going to echo that and hope that you're giving yourself grace in that process, I think. <laughs> yeah, I operate a lot differently than I did like two years ago even. Just, yeah, I think once as our perspective widens, we get more frustrated, like how we move and the space changes. So, yeah, if you're giving yourself space to, yeah, just do it different. Yeah. So there's one thing that you mentioned when you were talking about creating more representation in these outdoor spaces. You said it's not that we're not there. It's just that our stories aren't being told. So when you were working as a park ranger, did you have an opportunity to create some sort of accountability or an opportunity to tell those stories or make them available? And if so, how? Yeah, I don't think at that stage in my life, I had the language and understanding Mm -hmm. of what I needed to do. Like I knew that, Something didn't feel right, but I don't know at that point. I'm pretty sure at that point I wasn't able to put my finger on it. I was like, oh, well, this, like the state park that I was working at was located right next to the Turtle Mountain Reservation. Mm -hmm. And like none of the indigenous culture, and this is me reflecting on it like 10 years later, none of the Mm -hmm. indigenous history was like incorporated into the curriculum. And yeah, I'm trying to work on that now of like, yeah, we are here like, as I mentioned, I like to climb and bike a lot. And like most of the people I recreate with are people of color. So when people are like, oh, people of color don't do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that's all I know. I'm like, oh, I didn't know white people did this activity. Yeah. So it's something that's like front and center now, but it definitely wasn't then. I, yeah, that was like my first job out of college. And so it was more of just about experiencing that. And then like eventually getting to a point of like, oh, we have been here. Like, it's not that. We aren't here. It's just like not part of the stories that are being told and amplified. Yeah, that's so true. It makes me think of, I just remember their Instagram name, Joy Trip. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they did the, forgive me, I I forget his name. But they did the hike on up to, was it the, was it Denali? Oh yeah, um, Expedition Denali. Yeah, yeah. That was some years ago. And then recently there was the Everest Expedition. Was that a mix of like U.S. and international? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I think there's a person from Kenya on that team and some folks from the U.S. Yeah, that one was international. And then Expedition Denali in 2012, which I had the joy of working with. Oh, cool. That was, all, um, I think, maybe it was international folks on that too. I'm like blanking on all the team members right now. Yeah, I know about the U.S. international one to Everest because I heard about it on NPR and it's Kenyan yes. and I'm from Kenya. So I was really excited oh, yeah. <laughs> that Kenyan had made it to the top of Everest. And just hearing his interview, he was just talking about how it's not something that he really considered growing up. And he just developed a passion for mountaineering, I guess is the correct term for that. Yeah. So when you talk about redirecting or moving more resources towards creating structural programming to support the growth of people of color in the outdoor and environmental sector. How are some of the ways in which you you do so? Yeah, I think the way that I'm focusing on right now is like leveraging the social capital and space that I have to put opportunities in front of people and like to support people and getting the resources they need for like projects, ideas, I love being a connector. I've always been like really nosy and also like very chatty. Like I'm just very curious. And I think that has led me to like having a pretty wide network of people. And so I'm always interested in like connecting people to other 
resources, opportunities. And then also, yeah, I was fortunate to, in 2020, after I left PGM1, was granted a fellowship through the Pisces Foundation alongside Angela, the R.C. Mooney, and we're creating a fellowship for folks of color in the environmental space. And I feel like that is the, that's like some work that feels like in the background right now, but like that is the biggest thing that I'm working on and I'm excited about right now, like resourcing folks of color through individual fellowships to work on the ideas that they know will significantly impact the environmental space. I'm so over like foundations moving money towards like DEI initiatives and not just the people, like give money to people. And I think there's often the like, the pushback of like, oh, we don't know how to do that. There's no precedent for that. But like foundations were created as tax loopholes. Like you can figure it out. <laughs> like <laughs> Rich people figure out like how to move money all the time. And so I think like, I'm really excited to figure out like how to really do this and like really how to like sustain a fellowship for folks of color. So we can leave these institutions that don't serve us and leave these institutions like that weren't created with us in mind and were created like by known racists. Like it's just, I think if there's a place that we can go to like dream and to like ideate and to like follow through on ideas and be resourced to do it, then that's what I want to put my support behind. Yeah. So what are some of the examples of these fellowships? So you are a fellow who's looking for other potential fellows and providing them the grant funding to bring their ideas to life, correct? A few steps back. So yeah, we're fellows and we are creating a fellowship. So it's not out in the world yet, but we're creating like a framework and infrastructure to have a longstanding fellowship specifically focused on Black and Indigenous folks mm -hmm. who just need resources and time to create. Similar to like the Nathan's Cummings Fellowship. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's a few fellowships like Roddenberry Fellowship where they give okay. individuals funding just to work on ideas that they have and to put forth in the world. And that's something that we want to see. And then another part of it is like acquiring land for people to mm -hmm. retreat and rest on. That's cool. Yeah, I think like safe... And like nourishing experiences on the land for folks of color is like key towards like liberation and freedom. Oh, the next question I was asking was like, what does it look like to acquire land to rest on? I like the idea. I just, would it look like a park with amenities or a sacred space? What does that look like? Mm, I love a visual exercise. It looks like. For me, it looks like somewhere that's close to, the, I mean, California, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm based in Oakland and I'm thinking about the coast and the redwoods. I'm thinking about cabins with like comfy beds. I'm thinking about like a big library space, a big rest space, a big kitchen that like serves food that like we grew up eating, like really nourishing meals. It's a lot of land. There's a lot of space to play. There's like tools and equipment to go hiking or like to go rafting rafting was a stretch to go canoeing to like take picnics out into the land like it's just a massive space with like orchards and there's a lot of fruit trees around yeah yeah it's pretty expansive in my head right now and i think we can do it okay that's cool that's cool it reminds me of one of our guests i don't know why i'm just like blanking on everyone's name but i can just remember his i think it was his middle name it was so chill and he called himself the flower bender but he also works on a farm in somewhere in california i forget again but i'll refer to the episode but it's a community farm actually in oakland i believe if i'm not wrong and most of the target audience or yeah target groups are young Latinx kids that he brings in to show them how to, you know, cultivate different types of flowers and veggies. And I feel like that would be a space that would be considered as rejuvenating and, and a safe space for. But he also, they do a lot of ceremonies on that land as well. So I'll have to look into that. I would love to know more about those folks, especially if they're in Oakland. Yeah, I'll send you their information. Cool. 
you have a, what I would consider a superpower, which is networking (laughs) and being nosy, like you said. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think that's a skill, truly, because a lot of us don't know how to network or build networks or just reach out to people, like have the confidence or feel like the need to reach out to other people and learn from them. So how did you... I'm guessing it's part of your personality, but what kind of advice would you give to other people of color who are in the outdoor environmental space who want to build their career in this space, but do so by building like constructive networks that support them and uplift them? Yeah. I'm not joking when I call myself nosy, but (laughs) underneath that is I grew up with not a lot of resources financially. So I've always felt like an opportunist Mm -hmm. and kind of... Oh, like I, if I want something to happen, like my family didn't have the money to do it. So I'm like, who do I know who could support this? Or like, where are the scholarships? Or like, I took myself through like the process to get into college and like figure out how to get it funded and everything. So I've always just had to know what the resources were outside of financial ones in order to get things done. And so like, I don't think that's a part of me that will ever go away. Like, no matter how much my circumstances change. So I take that mindset into work. It's like, okay, well, if there's not financial capital, there's other sources of capital. There's like land, there's social capital. There's like so many different ways that you can support people and that the people can support your work. And so I, let me just figure out how I want to synthesize this advice because I can feel my brain wandering in a lot of directions. (laughs) I think like, Spending time getting clear on like roughly where you want to head mm-hmm. is really important. And then making a map of what you need to get there. And so if that's like, like for me, like I would really like to learn how to acquire land, ideally and not pay for it. So I'm like, okay, who has done this before? And just doing research into like who has done that before right? and what's the precedent for it. And then like surrounding myself or not necessarily surrounding myself with people. I don't know if they will be there long-term, but like learning or like identifying people who have that skill set and you might have some time to just like talk to me about things. I will usually talk to most people about most things because I'm just like deeply curious. And I think that we learn a lot just from being like really curious about people and their backgrounds. There's so much we don't know from the surface. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think like getting roughly like clear on what you want and thinking about ways to go about achieving it that aren't necessarily financial because I feel like financial resources are the most, it's a huge generalization, but like in this very specific context, like it's the most basic resource people can provide. And so I think like thinking about like the other ways that people can support the work that you want to do is super important. Always been pretty okay with like cold calling people and just like walking up to folks and talking to them. But I think something about the pandemic flattened hierarchies for me because I I will never forget I was on a call with someone who was pretty high up in this organization that I've always wanted to talk to Mm -hmm. and their kid was in the background just like screaming and I was like oh right you're just (laughs) human like me like we are all at home we're all trying to figure this out and that just like flattens hierarchies Mm -hmm. in my head and I think if we remember that these people are people like of course like wealth privilege and all those things are at play as well. But I think if we can just like remember that and just like approach people, <laughs> yeah, then you would be surprised. Like I've definitely like slid into people's DMs on LinkedIn and they're like, oh yeah, I'll talk to you on the phone. <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful, but no, that is. that's how I've approached it. And I think, yeah, I think my opportunistic ways that I've had to have as someone who's come from low resources financially has played a huge part in that. And I think I don't think we put enough emphasis on how important it is to maintain relationships and what goes into maintaining relationships. Like, I genuinely like a lot of people that I work with. And I think a lot of the opportunities I have are because I've stayed in touch with people and I'm like genuinely curious and genuinely care about people outside of the work that they do. Like the work that they do is like probably the most thing I'm least interested in. It's just like more like, how do you move in this world? Like what's important to you? Because people change jobs. Mm-hmm. People leave jobs, people change careers. But like, if you're in their network, you're going to be in their network, like regardless of where they head next. So I think also just being curious and taking time to maintain relationships with people, regardless of the work is really important. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say, because 
yeah, I think a lot of the networking I was doing in the beginning of my career was like out of necessity. And also like, I just didn't have a lot of discernment that at the age. And there's so, all right, not so many. There are some people that I just didn't need to have relationships with. Like I thought that like as a young black woman, I was like, okay, I need to like give this old or white person all of my time. And I didn't need to, and I don't need to follow up on all their requests. And when they need something, I don't need to respond. And I think that discernment has allowed me more space to be in and saying no to those people mm-hmm. has given me like more space to interact with the people that I really want to. Yeah. So yeah, as you get like into the swing of things, just having discernment of like, no, I don't want to give you 45 minutes of my time because I know what you're about based off what you put out into the world and I'm not interested in supporting or engaging around. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it reminds me of one situation where I was having to give more of my time to this one person and I felt bad and I was just like going back and forth with my husband about like, should I do what they're asking of me? And but I don't feel like doing it, but I don't want to be mean and blah, blah, blah. It was just like such a cluster, I'm telling you, until yeah. he was like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. You don't owe anyone anything. Yeah. Especially somebody who's going to get more out of this than you are. Like there's an imbalance. So just yeah, let go of that like toxic kind of, I guess, arrangement, relationship. And it was really like weighing quite heavily on me until like, I just, yeah, had to keep saying no, no, no. And I felt bad, but also it created more space and it allowed me to just focus on the things that mattered to me for my business and what I was trying to build. But right. That's so hard to do, though. And I feel like if another one of those... It's definitely a muscle. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Well, I was going to say, it's a hard muscle to flex. Like, you got to, like... It's hard to do. And the more you do it, like, I still struggle with it, but I have gotten a little faster. (laughs) Like, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I recognize this pattern. Like, no. And, like, I don't always say it right away. Like, I should sometimes. But the more you flex it, the quicker you get. Like... Yeah. You're like, oh, I see these red flags. I know these red flags. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. But it's not easy. And I think especially those of us who have been socialized as women in the society and women of color, like specifically women of color, there's often like a power dynamic. There's like an obligation factor of like, oh, well, I have to give you this time and I Mm -hmm. owe you this time. And like, I think the more we flex that muscle and like show other people coming up behind us and alongside us that we don't have to do that. Right. The quicker we'll get around them. Yeah. I feel that way similarly with volunteering within the industry because everyone's mm. like, volunteer as much as you can. I'm like, do you know how much time it takes to volunteer? Like your time to oh like gosh. develop a strategy for like a huge association that has like a budget of millions of dollars. Like, yeah, that's the type of stuff where I also have to be like really careful about how much of like my expertise I'm giving for free. Because Mm -hmm. then no one's going to like want to pay me for my time if they're like, oh, yeah, Sabna will just do that stuff for free. Just ask her to volunteer. She's always willing and able. And so that's another thing. But then it's also a balance that if you're not volunteering, then you're not like there's an advantage to it because you get plugged into other networks and you get some sort of visibility. But with me, I just, yeah, still learning those boundaries of how much of my yeah. like emotional and actual like knowledge labor should I be dedicating to a volunteer opportunity? Because I ain't getting paid totally. <laughs> and I don't have a full-time job, you know? Right. Like I have a business, so. Yeah. I'm usually against volunteering unless it's for a community organization. Like I'm like, oh, you all have money for this. If you really wanted to put money towards it, you would. But I do, yeah, I think like around the, exposure piece or like getting plugged into specific networks like yeah there's some situations where I'm like okay well if I do this then this allows access to this or like yeah if I do this like I often will like volunteer or like be on a scholarship committee because mm. like I'm like okay that is something I could see the benefit of like for other people like so if it's a opportunity that can create space for other people then I usually I will like think about it a little bit more. <laughs> right, usually, right. I just like will give it more thought. Right. And then I think like 
there are situations where there's not financial resources offered. And if that's something that you do need in that situation, then I totally support anyone walking away from things that aren't compensated. But if you don't necessarily need the financial compensation for it, but there's something else they can provide, like, oh, well, I will do this for you for a volunteer, but I want to be featured on your website. Or like, mm-hmm. I want you to make a post about me on Instagram and in my business. Like yeah. getting creative in those ways about how they can support you with other resources, I think is important. Yeah. Because it's not the same as financial compensation, but I think there are a few situations where that's something I would like follow up on. Right. Yeah, like for example, I'm on a committee for a water association and I'm able to, if I wanted to, publish articles in their journal, which there's less vetting (laughs) to get into that process because I'm already kind of plugged into the association. So that's one advantage. And then people who are on the committee, they're like, oh, Sapna, that's your expertise. Do you want to be on a proposal with us? So, you know, there's where you can kind of like leverage your position in that situation where you're volunteering. So I agree with you on finding other ways to take advantage of the situation as well while giving back as well. Yeah, that's the perfect example. It's a great example. Mm-hmm. So I really liked your advice of just being curious. I think curiosity is what will drive anyone's desire to just send that email or get into somebody's DMs and ask them to just like give a few minutes of their time. And I really like this, what you were saying about how with the pandemic, you realized that they're just people, they're just regular people and we shouldn't be so intimidated by their titles. There's one last thing I wanted to just kind of talk to you about if you have like maybe 10 minutes left. So it's, the issue of philanthropy and how philanthropy has tended to limit the resources that it's providing to BIPOC initiatives. What kind of advice or how would you appeal to philanthropies to just kind of break that cycle of giving funding to the same kind of like, I don't want to say like white causes, but the same traditional causes that they have historically, which benefit mostly like white folks. How can they unthink, undo some of that? Yeah, I want to make a distinction before I start talking about it. I would like to distinguish between the people with the money, the philanthropists behind the foundations, and the people working Mm -hmm. at foundations. Good distinction. I think something that needs to happen in philanthropy and the people who have the money is to acknowledge where the money came from. I think too often we look at philanthropy as a solution, and it's not. It's like... Mm -hmm. Foundations shouldn't exist. Like philanthropy shouldn't have to exist. And no one gets that much money without extraction and without exploitation. Often, like I would say more often than not, I actually can't think of a situation that it isn't the case, like on the backs of folks of color, like slave mm-hmm. labor, child labor, like that's how you get that wealthy. That's how billionaires are created. And so I think there needs to be acknowledgement of like how the money was acquired and like really like doing the work to like confront that. And I think like that is at the root of like why foundations are giving in the way they do. It's like, I think people hold it up as a solution and not a tool. My ideal world would be like no foundations, no philanthropists, like money should be like distributed among people and no one should have like excess of wealth to that degree. Mm -hmm. So I think like yeah, philanthropists confronting that like very head on of like, yeah, I didn't acquire this money from hard work. Like Elon Musk is not that rich because he works that hard. Like it's just not possible. And so I think confronting that it will do a lot of the repair work needed around philanthropy. Yeah, I don't know if I have advice because I don't think it's, yeah, I think it's just like so corrupt at its roots Mm -hmm. that it needs to be completely dismantled. Like I don't really buy into the idea of like reimagining philanthropy. Like to reimagine it is to dismantle it. Like it can't exist. <laughs> like there's no yeah. equality in philanthropy, in my opinion. But what I will say for folks of color seeking funding from foundations is just like ask for more and ask for, like ask your white peers and counterparts and other institutions, like how much they're getting and then like demand more money. Like I think we saw in the pandemic that foundations can move more money. They can move it faster and they can move it with less questions asked. Like I know some foundations that were like, who, when I was working at PGO one, they're like, 
it's going to take us like a few months to get you your check pandemic hit and they're like we can get it to you tomorrow i'm like wait what like a lot of this philanthropy (laughs) stuff is made up and so i think yeah for folks of color who are seeking funding is like do some research about how how much other people are getting from these institutions because it will blow your mind and then like start demanding more and as much as you're comfortable like push back on some of the like requirements that these foundations have around like reporting and like what they're doing with our information and like some of the like oppression statistics that they want to make sure that they're doing a good job like i think it's really like just demanding more yeah something i would suggest ah it's interesting i never thought about it because in an ideal world we wouldn't need philanthropies in an ideal world they wouldn't hold so much power and resource but then i think about gosh what would the alternative to that be to philanthropy yeah well, I think it's we all have like access to housing. We all have are paid living wages. We're all paid for the labor that we put out into the world. I think in our society now, like low wage workers are doing the work that is making people wealthy and them themselves, mm-hmm. like these people themselves, like aren't paid a living wage, don't have access to stable housing. And so I think in a world where we took care of each other and anticipated the needs of each other and everyone was housed with living wages like we wouldn't it just we would wouldn't need it yeah so like i feel like it, that's a big alternative moving to that way of being but i think yeah the way philanthropy was created it is a tax haven for the wealthy and i think if we stop right. thinking about it that way of like you should be giving away most of your wealth not like this like little percentage you need to give away to like maintain your wealth or like your pocket change because i do think like Philanthropy's their pocket change in a lot of ways. Like it's not like their wealth. Like I don't think philanthropy is necessarily redistributing wealth because like they're people are holding on to so much of it. It's like, okay, what is three million given away a year if you are worth like a billion? Like what is that? Mm -hmm. That is like the money you found in your couch. Chump change. (laughs) Yeah. So like if it's not like big redistributions, then I don't think it is really putting a dent in anything. It's just like actually like upholding the systems. Like it's like, oh, we'll give a little bit here and there. And like, you have to rely on this institution in order for your organization or like quality of life to exist. Like that is incredibly harmful and not moving us towards anything. It's just like maintaining the status quo. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Completely agree. Ugh, it's like this beast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, and having worked in the nonprofit world and seeing just, gosh, I don't know, it's really messy. And it's, again, probably another like conversation about how like the monies are used once they are like transferred over to the bigger environmental organizations. Like most of the organizations I worked in, much of that money went to overhead because it was just like, and I was like, what's going to the people that were supposed? we say we're going to be benefiting. And then in some cases, the money just went into the pockets of like corrupt politicians. Yeah. Just so that we thought we were getting our work done, but we were just feeding into that same evil in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just like, who knows, like who are the type of institutions that know how to fill out the grants and, you know, right do so in an effective way that it really appeals to like the philanthropy's way of doing things. And it's Mm -hmm. mostly just like white led organizations that have the capacity to do that. And so one of the things that we were like, I was suggesting to some of the clients that I've worked with is like, why don't you like have free workshops for BIPOC led organizations in your region on how to fill out these grants do it for them if you could as well. Yeah. And just help them like leverage their position within that system, right? If we can't like dismantle it, then why can't we just elevate bipoc organizations to increase their competitive edge for this type of funding as well and make them like just as savvy as these white-lit organizations, so. Yeah, it is a beast. There's no other way to describe it, just like all the ways that it's, made to be like exclusive limited to be really passive yeah philanthropy is a beast <laughs> yeah yeah and now there's this new thing of like philanthropies are like we don't want to have any strings attached great 
So we'll just give them the money and do their own thing. And I'm like, okay, but if you're going to give a startup BIPOC organization money, like why can't you provide them with some additional resources or training, free training on how to successfully be a startup and becoming a more established organization within their community, right? I feel like it's just, here, take this money, no strings attached. But often these organizations don't have like the capacity on how to like manage the funds, for example, like they don't have enough people or expertise. It's just like the nature of how things are right now until they can get that kind of expertise. What are your thoughts on that? Just like giving the money with. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, yeah, there definitely needs to be more infrastructure. What are my thoughts? I'm trying to like wrap it into one concise thought, but sometimes like organizations like oscillate between like, okay, we've been doing it wrong. So let's go to this other end of the spectrum without like really thinking about like other things that need to be in place to support it. Like I think in 2020, Mm -hmm. when I was at PGM one, like, there was just like a water hose of funding towards black organizations and leaders. And it's like, okay, you all haven't been supporting us for so long. And then you're just going to like have this big cash flow of money. And like a lot of organizations grew so rapidly during that time. Yeah. Like in terms of like financial resources, but like the infrastructure wasn't there. Like so many of these organizations have been undercapitalized in so many ways for so long that yeah, some of us didn't know how to grow wisely i'm using air quotes around that Mm -hmm. but like and like quicker and so yeah what you get is just like yeah it's just also doing a disservice so i think there needs to be like some intentionality around like how it's given and then like again like going back to like what exists outside of financial resources like yeah like grant writing resources like business management resources and like providing the resources to do that like through other lenses. So there are experts out there who aren't white folks who can provide this and like the foundation's putting the money behind organizations accessing that because what we don't want to happen is like leaders from the organizations that are problematic coming in and teaching people how to build organizations like that. So yeah, yeah, I think there's like a lot of opportunity like for mentorship and infrastructure along with the money giving. I've really appreciated some of the like organizational effectiveness departments that are popping up at foundations and the re- mm. the grants that are being made around organizational effectiveness because I think yeah the money's just part of it big part of it for sure but just a part of it yeah like you have to set up these organizations for success you can't just expect them to like one day know how to like effectively disseminate the funds and utilize them for the full benefit and intention of those resources. So anyways, I don't want to like take you down into this rabbit hole. (laughs) No, I live in this rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) I hope there's light (laughs) and food. (laughs) There's like a little pillow for me to lay on sometimes. I live in the rabbit hole, but it doesn't feel like restrictive in any way. It's just like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. But yeah, it's, yeah, it can make me spiral sometimes. I try not to like, let the spiraling get me too far away from like what I actually can do. Yes. Yeah. And that's why the fellowship that you are embarking on with the Pisces Foundation, it seems like it could be some solution to redirecting more resources to Black and Indigenous folks. So I'd love to follow you on that journey. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, I see it as a as a tool mm-hmm. towards getting somewhere different. Yeah. All right, so let's start to wrap up this conversation for now until you get more insight on how to, I guess, like the DI conversation that we had earlier on yeah. and philanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's something will come to you as you go along this journey. So we're going into the lightning round. And in the lightning round, I have a series of four questions. And typically we just have the guest answer the first thing that comes to their mind. It could be one word. It could be a sentence. Sometimes it turns out to be another rabbit hole, but (laughs) I'll let the universe decide that for us. So if you're ready, I can ask you the first question here. Ready. Okay, cool. So what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? A lot of things. Mm -hmm. I try to be continuously inspired. Yeah. But what I most recently, what's been inspiring me, because I am someone who like, can spiral a bit and get really overwhelmed by the state of the world. 
I've just been returning to Grizzly yeah. Boggs. And she says, yeah, just like focusing in on the small, like her actual quote is, we can begin by doing small things at the local level, like planting gardens, community gardens are looking out for our neighbors. That's how we change. That's how change takes place in living systems, not from above, but from within, from many local actions occurring simultaneously. And I think like that is a reminder I need to hear every day, like turn off the news and like go outside and meet a neighbor or like do something yeah. local. I think that helps me get back yeah. into my body and back into knowing what's possible. Yeah. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work slash life? I have really good boundaries around work. I really love mornings, like from like 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. I usually am awake, but not talking to anyone. Like yesterday, I went on a run. I went to a yoga class, like made breakfast, mm. like mornings. I have really hard boundaries around morning time. And yeah, yeah, I'm like, I have no qualms about stopping work like at four o'clock, three o'clock. I think my yeah. dedication to my personal care really makes me a better person in a work environment. So yeah just like following my natural routine around waking up early and getting outside and running or biking or something active that's really cool my only boundaries i try to <laughs> it's not a boundary when i said try to <laughs> get in there yeah just end my day at 3 p.m nice start at 9 3 but sometimes with time zones i have to make exceptions for that Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Recently, I was talking to someone about how to become a better writer Mm -hmm. and how to, yeah, have process around that. And she was just like, Grace, like you you have process in other parts of your life. And yeah, actually what I'm going to pull out in that, she was like, just trust your intuition. Like we know some things about ourselves. Like as like we get clear on who we are and how we show up, we like learn a lot of things about ourselves. So like just trusting that and not trying to live out what I need to do and someone else's framework that they created for themselves. Like just like guiding myself based on what I know about myself. Mm -hmm. I think I often, too often look outward for like ways of being or ways to do things. And I don't necessarily need to do that all the time. So I really appreciated that hearing that recently. Yeah, that's a good one. Sometimes I feel I don't have an intuition, but that's because I'm not oh, like I'm looking inward. <laughs> yeah. And I think it gets suppressed by white supremacy. It's like, oh, don't trust your intuition. Oh, it's our intuition's real. We know some things. Yeah. But we know a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then the final question here is what is your superpower? Reservations. I wake up really early in the morning. So I like am the queen of camp reservations. Like backpacking Mm. permits reservations like restaurant reservations i like just love doing that for some reason so like yeah (laughs) if someone's like oh we want to get this like cabin like there's this cabin that like is really sought after and i like got it on my birthday like yeah i just love making camp reservations and other reservations (laughs) that's my superpower (laughs) oh wow yeah that is definitely sought after at least for me because I usually don't get the reservations I want (laughs) it's hard it's like people always cancel so like the one I got on my birthday I think I got it like two weeks in advance like I always just look for cancellations I don't wake up early when like the window opens usually but I just like always look for cancellations that is a good one so we talked about you know following you on your journey how can we do so I'm pretty mediocre on social media right now but I am on Instagram but uh, yeah, if you go to my website, which is graceanderson.co, you can find a link to my Instagram. And I'm going to be writing more soon. But yeah, I think website and Instagram at this moment in time are the best ways. Cool. Yeah. I'm kind of non-existent on social media right now. <laughs> I do not like keeping up with it. Taking a break from it. Yeah, it is a whole... No, it's a lot of work. But sometimes I love being in, but yeah. It's a lot of work. All right. So before we go our separate ways, is there anything else you would like to add that you didn't get a chance to? Yeah, I really appreciate you holding this space and doing these interviews. I think I wish I had known that other people of color existed. And like, I wish I just had like this as a resource when I was a little younger. So I really appreciate you holding the space, bringing people and asking these questions, because I think it's all about, yeah, like once we 
as we like increase perspective on this industry and space, like more people will see themselves like reflected in it. So yeah, just deep Mm -hmm. appreciation to you for holding this. Thank you so much. And offering it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. It's one of the reasons why I felt kind of isolated as an environmental professional in the U S at least. And I always wondered to myself, like when you were talking about when you were park ranger and over the years came to the realization that we're here, it's just our stories aren't being told. And oh, there you go. I thought that the podcast would be the best way to tell the stories of those who are here and doing the work. And so I'm really grateful that you agreed to give me this time and share your your insights and share some of the items around your rabbit holes <laughs> with us. I know I say this with all guests is just I'm always so humbled and honored after every conversation. And so thank you for sharing that space and time with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.